Hi, you're listening to Hello Movies, a podcast for people who really love going to the movies. I'm your host, Lana Gay. In this episode, find out why you should see The Dead Don't Die, even if you're not into zombies. We'll have trivia about musicians nominated for Oscars for acting. We'll explore the history of the summer blockbuster. And we'll talk to Tanner Zipchin about new movies you don't want to miss. But first, we talk with the screenwriters behind the newest chapter in the Men in Black franchise, Men in Black International. We are a rumor. Recognizable only as deja vu and dismissed just as quickly. We are the best kept secret in the universe. I know. I want in. Men in Black is back. Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth take over from Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones to battle aliens, to befriend others, and of course to wipe out memories in Men in Black International. This time around, the movie takes place across the globe, hitting five different cities, and brings back Emma Thompson as Agent O. Here to talk about the newest chapter in the Men in Black adventure, the screenwriting duo of Art Markham and Matt Holloway. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hello. Hi, Lana. Great to be here. Art, let me start with you. Were you guys fans of the the original movies? Huge fans of the original movies. Uh, you know, particularly the first one, even before we got involved in this movie, we'd always sort of cite that as sort of a perfect movie in a lot of ways. It's so tight. It's so funny. It was so original. When the opportunity came to be involved in the franchise, we were we were thrilled. So Matt, what was your reaction when you got the gig writing this one? Uh, it's just one of those gigs that you get and you sort of can't believe it. You kind of pinch yourself. You just feel lucky that you're able to have the chance to tell a story in a franchise that you so respect. You guys were the co-writers on the very first Iron Man back in 2008. How do these two experiences compare? Well, with Iron Man, it was sort of the first one of the MCU, right? So you didn't have as much to look back on. Uh, you didn't have as much tonal touchstones and things that you a, a could inspire you or B could constrain you. So Iron Man was a very, diff- uh, a very different situation, right? Men in Black, obviously, is kind of the opposite. Three beloved movies, a very specific tone, a very specific and defined universe. So you're operating within that space. But because this was a departure with two different actors and a sort of a, a totally different approach to it, going international, as the title uh, suggests, it didn't feel confining. It, it felt like there were, you know, certain guide rails that sort of helped us. Um, and, you know, Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald, who are the producers uh, of the franchise, they're very helpful in basically, you know, making sure that we never sort of, you know, drifted out of something that felt like it was from a different movie. Right. Uh, now, the movie has two Marvel stars, Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth. How did you build the dynamic between the two characters? Well, first of all, we just felt extremely lucky to get Tessa and Chris for the roles. We couldn't have been more fortunate. They have such great chemistry in the MCU and to be able to give them something to do to write new characters for them and and create a different dynamic between them was just an amazing opportunity. Tessa Thompson, also the first woman uh, co-star lead in a Men in Black movie, which is great. Uh, can, I'm just going to play a little clip of how she describes her character. She's badass because she's really smart and she's a total geek and she isn't afraid to admit it. And I think her superpower is her mind. What did you want to make sure you got right with Agent M's character? Well, I think the thing that was the departure with her character is that, you know, traditionally men in black 
in the previous movies, Men in Black finds people uh, of talent, of of interest, and then recruits them. Whereas on this one, we sort of flipped that, right? She, uh, Tessa has, Tessa's character, Agent M, has an encounter with an alien when she's small and an encounter with the Men in Black. She doesn't know they're the Men in Black at the time, but when she's when she's young and she basically dedicates her life from there on out to find these people and to get into the organization. She wants the truth. She wants to know, you know, what's going on behind the curtain. So, and just in terms of pure plausibility, you want to believe that this organization that for three movies has shown itself to be totally top secret, it's hiding in plain sight, but you'd never know it was there, that you could believe that somebody would be able to have the smarts, the wherewithal, and the moxie to track them down and find them. So, you know, making sure that you crafted a character who the audience could go on that journey with and completely believe that she of all people, you know, would be the only person to actually hunt down and find the men in black. So who were your favorite, or I guess, which were your favorite characters to write for? Pawnee was a lot of fun. He's, uh, you know, a four inch tall alien uh, who masquerades as a chess piece in the movie. You don't get an opportunity to write that character every day. <laughs> and he also has a real irreverent voice. He, he was great. He's sort of the Greek choir, you know, he, he's sort of the guy between Chris and, and Tessa, who can sort of tell it like it is, tell, sort of tell the uncomfortable truths. And Kumail Nanjiani, who plays him, is phenomenal, hilarious, phenomenal writer in his own right, uh, obviously, Academy Award caliber writer. And so he was really fun to work with. And he brought, he just elevated Pawnee beyond what was on the page. And it, it, that, was, that was a real joy. Are you a queen? Hmm? Indeed she is. I pledge loyalty eternal to you. No, 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 I'm not interested. Too late. I already pledged the loyalty. I wish you'd said no, no, no before. You two obviously are writing partners. Uh, what do you think you accomplish so much as a pair that you can't do individually? We don't have duplicative minds. We, we like the same kinds of movies, but, you know, we don't have the same life experiences. And so we don't bring exactly the same experience to the page. And that that's invaluable, right? You basically literally have two brains instead of one, two different perspectives. And then in terms of the process, you know, having someone to bat ideas around, by the time you actually make it to the writing stage, you've you know, answered a lot of questions that maybe you wouldn't even know you had and that you'd have to find out in the writing process before, but you can actually discover in the conversation before you begin writing. And then all, that also translates to actually writing it. You know, we the way Matt and I write is we we outline movie, the movie pretty in depth, and then we split up scenes and we swap them. So I'll write a scene and send it to him. He'll do his thing on it and send it back to me. So that by the time you're actually done with a first draft, it's actually more like a second draft. In that regard, uh, I don't know that it's, any faster, but the final product, I think, is more polished than it would be if we were just doing it on our own. Fair enough. Okay, guys, tell everyone why they should see this movie on the big screen. It's the big question. Matt, do you want to go with this one? Yeah, well, I just think this is a great new chapter, hopefully, uh, knock on wood, in the MIB franchise. And I just think the movie, we couldn't have been luckier with getting a, a tremendous cast for, that really threw themselves into this movie. And I think that's because the underlying material, the MIB world is beloved. Yeah. I mean, I think it, you need to go see it on the big screen because it's, you know, we have beautiful international exotic locations. We have beautiful, awesome, funny, hilarious, talented movie stars. It's a, it's beautifully shot by Gary Gray. Jerome Chen, who's our effects supervisor, has some amazing aliens and amazing special effects that really demand to be seen on the big screen. So and who doesn't like, you know, and it's funny, so who doesn't like uh, sharing in some yucks and laughs with a crowd in a, in a movie theater over some popcorn? So I hope everybody goes out to the theater and enjoys it. You guys are great. Thank you so much and can't wait to see the movie. 
Oh, thank you so much. Podcasts like this are so cool. Like we're so supportive. Thank you so much. In episode four, we asked you about actors who've recorded albums. So now we're flipping things around. This week, we're talking about musicians who've crossed over into acting. Definitely inspired by Iggy Pop, RZA, Selena Gomez, and Tom Waits in The Dead Don't Die. Who's the poster woman for this category? Cher, of course. She was nominated for her first Oscar for Silkwood, then won for Moonstruck. Her award was presented by none other than the glorious Paul Newman. She even beat out acting greats like Glenn Close, Holly Hunter, and yes, Meryl Streep. And remember Jennifer Hudson of American Idol fame? Taking an Oscar home for Dreamgirls? She didn't even win American Idol, by the way. She came in seventh. Okay. Maybe DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince doesn't spring to mind when you hear Will Smith's name, but it was how he got his start. Years later, he scored acting nominations for The Pursuit of Happiness and the biopic he starred in about Muhammad Ali. Other singers have jumped into acting and done pretty well. Barbara Streisand, anyone? There's also Gwen Stefani, Janelle Monet, Harry Styles, and yes, Queen Bee herself, Beyonce. So time for the trivia question. I'll give you four names. Three of them got Oscar nominations for their acting. One did not. Despite getting glowing reviews and lots of love from Hollywood and beyond. Here we go. Who never got their accolades from the Academy? One, Queen Latifah. Two, Mary J. Blige. Three, Madonna. Or four, Mark Wahlberg. We'll tell you the answer later in the podcast. Gotta kill the head. Kill the head. Decapitate. It's the only way to go. Jesus. Do you like zombie movies? Do you hate zombie movies? Are you indifferent to zombie movies? Well, there's a new one hitting theaters this month that might surprise you no matter what side of the zombie fence you're on. It's called The Dead Don't Die, and it's not your typical zombie movie. And yet, it sort of is. To let you know why this film is worth your time, Hello Movies proudly presents five reasons you should go see The Dead Don't Die, even if you're not a zombie fan. Oh, and if you are a zombie fan, well, you can use these five reasons to convince your friends to go see it with you in case they aren't the zombie lovers you want them to be. Reason number one, Jim Jarmusch, who wrote and directed the movie. He's an indie filmmaker, not a Hollywood guy, with his own unique style. His last movie was Patterson, starring Adam Driver as a poetry writing bus driver. So his filmmaking, from the pacing to the stories themselves, is unlike anyone else's. He's a big fan of George Romero's classic Night of the Living Dead, but Jim Jarmusch's zombie movie has its own unique tone. This is really awful. Maybe the worst thing I've ever seen. What was it, wild animals? So what are you thinking? I'm thinking zombies. What? You know, the undead. Ghouls. Now, if you're a mainstream movie fan who gets a little nervous about indie filmmakers, relax. You'll find a lot of familiar faces here. That brings us to reason number two. The movie stars Adam Driver, Chloe Sevigny, and the great Bill Murray. They play a trio of police officers in the small town of Centerville. These are cops used to looking into minor crimes like chicken stealing, who suddenly have to deal with the zombie apocalypse. But don't let this serious trio fool you. Chloe says that despite being initially intimidated by her much taller co-stars, they had a lot of fun. One day when filming was stopped to wait out a rainstorm, Bill grabbed Chloe and Adam and took them for a joyride in the police car. Now that we know what it's like working with Bill Murray, we can move on to reason number three. The rest of the cast. There are a lot of fascinating actors in this movie as townspeople, tourists, and of course, zombies. 
Rosie Perez plays a newscaster. Riza of Wu-Tang Clan fame is a wisdom-spouting delivery man. Selena Gomez plays a teen in search of a good motel. And Steve Buscemi is a racist farmer in a red baseball cap that says, Make America White Again, who hangs out with Danny Glover. Tom Waits steals his scenes as Hermit Bob. There's also Iggy Pop, who was the subject of a, a documentary done by Jarmusch. And Carol Kane, who is in the movie Scrooged with Bill Murray, and co-stars in the TV series Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. They play two of the first zombies we see on screen, setting the tone for the rest. They gravitate towards things they did when they were alive. Coffee. Chardonnay. Did she just say Chardonnay? Yeah, she did. And then, for the icing on the supporting actor cake, they've got Tilda Swinton as the Scottish mortician who wields a samurai sword. By the way, that cast includes one Oscar winner, that's Tilda, and six nominees. But on to reason number four. You should see The Dead Don't Die because, like any good zombie movie, it has something to say. The whole reason the zombies show up in Centerville in the first place is that polar fracking has knocked Earth off its axis. The movie opened the Cannes Film Festival last month, and Jarmusch was surprised people thought it was about politics, which he says doesn't really interest him. What he is interested in is how nature is declining rapidly and how little people seem to care. So he took those feelings and put them into a movie where greedy corporations have created the problem and nobody does anything about it. And finally, reason number five to see this movie, even if you're not a zombie person, it's funny. Zombie killing humor, anyone? Plus, the deadpan delivery Jim Jarmusch fans have come to expect. It's filled with moments that are such in-jokes that they're in-jokes about the movie itself while it's happening. Adam Driver's character, Ronnie, keeps talking about how things are not going to end well. So Bill Murray, as Cliff, finally asks why he keeps saying that. Ronnie tells him it's because he read the script. Then Cliff complains that he's only been given the scenes he's actually in. More fun? Ronnie has a keychain from a certain huge sci-fi franchise that Adam Driver is pretty familiar with. So there you have it. If you already love zombies, this is definitely the movie for you. If you've never been a zombie person, but you love good writing, good acting, deadpan humor, slapstick humor, zombie humor, food for thought, and Tilda Swinton with a samurai sword, go see it. You can thank me later. It's time to answer the trivia question. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about musicians who've been nominated for Oscars for their acting. We gave you a list of four musicians and asked you to guess which one was never nominated. Do you know who it is? Let's find out. If you thought that Marky Mark of Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch wasn't getting the Oscar love, you're wrong. He got a nod for Best Supporting Actor for his role in The Departed, directed by Martin Scorsese. The movie took home four Oscars, including Best Picture. Did you think it was Mary J. Blige? Nope. She was up for Best Supporting Actress for Mudbound the year before last. She also set a new record. She's the first person to be nominated for both acting and music in the same year. She didn't win. But let's give her some applause for that one. Was it Queen Latifah? Nope. She got nominated for her role as Mama Morton in Chicago, but she lost to her co-star, Catherine Zeta-Jones. And that leaves Madonna. She got raves for her performance in Evita, but no Oscar nomination. The film did win for Best Song, You Must Love Me, and Madonna sang it on the big night, but the award went to the writers, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, who did thank her in their acceptance speech. You must love me. When you hear the term summer blockbuster, what do you think of? 
a great marketing campaign and a mechanical shark? Well, those, in fact, are its origins, and we'll get to that. But for me, the word summer blockbuster reminds me of my worst apartment. The summer before my second year of university, I shared a one-bedroom place with my friend Shauna, and I was the lucky one who lived in the curtained-off section of the living room. It was so bad. The wiring was terrible. All the lights dimmed every time you used the toaster. But top off that excellent living scenario with a scorching heat wave, and what do you have? Finding respite in the pure escapism of a movie, complete in an air-conditioned environment, and popcorn for dinner. It was bliss! But going to the movies in the summer, and not just to escape the heat, or your apartment, uh, it really wasn't popular until the mid-70s. Theaters traditionally had a summer slump in sales as everyone hit the beach and went on vacation. Enter Steven Spielberg's low-budget, leg-chomping thriller, Jaws. How did Jaws conquer the summer slump? It was the perfect, scary summer movie. It also had an unprecedented $2 million promo campaign unlike any other. So let's remember, this was 44 years ago. Giving away large parts of the plot in ads with terrifying taglines like, you'll never go in the water again. This was all new. Same with primetime TV marketing. So high fives to the promotions team over at Universal, who I kind of imagine as a group of hippies in a boardroom wearing giant bell bottoms and drawing huge pictures of a shark on flip paper. But that team really trailblazed the template for modern movie marketing, and it all started with Jaws. In addition to the sharp, quick trailers and advertisements, complete with the anxiety-inducing score, entertainment shows were invited to tour the set almost a year in advance of the release to create buzz which was also very new at the time, and not a buzzword. Jaws bit through, see what I did there? All the assumptions about moviegoers taking the summer off, and it had them lining up around the block to get into theaters. And yes, in those days, you actually had to line up to buy your tickets. So the lineups for Jaws, they created some serious need for real estate. People were busting the blocks to get in. It was a summer blockbuster. Get it? Within a few years, the summer blockbuster became a summer staple, and studios started planning for it. Big movies like the first Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T., they were all released with the idea of dominating the summer box office. And of course, they did, as did so many others in the years that followed. If you're like me and you've never had the chance to see Jaws on the big screen, you're in luck. It's going to be back in selected theaters as part of the flashback film series from July 26th through August 8th for only $6.99. So if you want more information, go to cineplex.com slash events slash flashback and find out why this movie is such a classic. Speaking of summer blockbusters, Tanner Zipchin, host of the Cineplex pre-show, is here to talk Spider-Man, Far From Home, and of course, many other movies on his radar. How's it going? Good. How you doing? I am good. Uh, you know, we're going to cover Spider-Man on our next podcast, and I was wondering, why do you think everyone should be excited about this one? Well, technically, this is the end of this phase of the Marvel movies. We all thought it was going to be Endgame. This is actually the end of, of this section. We have more coming. We all know what's coming next. But, uh, yeah, actually, so far, we don't really know too much about it. They've been kind of uh, coy on the details as who we might see. I know we were seeing what we think is maybe Sandman or Hydro Man in the trailers. That has yet to be kind of confirmed. They, we don't know. They're sneaky with the trailers. They are. We don't know. But we know for sure that Mysterio is in the movie played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who is a, a Appearing rather friendly for 
what's supposed to be a villain. So there's something going on there. Things aren't what they seem. Mm-hmm. Mm. Keep your enemies closer, right? This is true. Uh, Tanner, how about Shaft? This this is a sequel. It's not a remake, right? So what what do you need to know going in? Well, yeah, this I guess kind of a you know fitting in that whole Shaft world. You know, Richard Roundtree played, played the original Shaft so many years ago, and then Sam Jackson stepped into the role uh, several decades later. Now we got a new Shaft, little uh, little JJ Shaft. Who's stepping in, and and it's a the perfect Father's Day movie. It's coming out Father's Day weekend, so we got a, the dad and then the dad of a dad. So if you want to go see this movie with your dad, and maybe you enjoy Shaft-like things with your dad, like kicking butt and going to clubs, which is kind of strange. There's a few moments in this movie that I'm like, I don't know if I'd do that with my dad. Mm-hmm. But either way, there's a lot of like father bonding that could potentially happen in this movie. Okay, so some Father's Day uh, suggestions. What about, uh, this is completely different from Shaft, but Toy Story 4. Okay, who's voicing who? I know Keanu Reeves, Jordan Peele. We have, we've got, yeah, we've got uh, Keegan-Michael Key. Uh, yeah, Keanu Reeves is playing uh, the first truly Canadian character. So uh, they got they found a you know some Canadian representation to play the Canadian. He plays a, a stuntman, like almost like an evil Knievel like character. But yeah, Woody is back. Tim Allen, uh, Tom Hanks, of course, then uh, there too. So all the favorites are back. Some new characters, and this time uh, the toys are on another adventure. We thought it was going to be done with uh, with number three, as we saw the end of Andy's story. But this is the continuation of Woody's story. So now Woody's on an adventure to reunite with Bo Peep, and uh, he meets Forky, who is a, a craft that is made in a kindergarten class, and they end up on a little adventure together. I love it so much already! Yeah. I'm sure I will cry at least, I'm just putting this out there now, I will probably cry at least three times. Uh, okay, so I've been hearing great things about yesterday as well. Uh, it's, I think it's a really great premise. Uh, what can you tell us about yesterday? Yeah, it uh, follows the character Jack Malik, who is a struggling uh, musician. And one day, for whatever reason, it's almost like the Beatles never existed. So he starts to play a Beatles song. A friend of his is like, that's a really great song. He's like, you've never heard this before? It's the Beatles. I'm like, who are the Beatles? And then he realizes, okay, well, I can make a career playing Beatles songs and just pretending they're my own. And that's the premise. So he jumps to stardom playing Beatles tracks because no one else knows their Beatles track. Before you get out of here, uh, they've been talking about this Child's Play movie for years now. Mark Hamill, a.k.a. Luke Skywalker forever. Uh, but anyway, he's Chucky's voice now. How, do you, how does he sound? That's the thing with Mark Hamill. Everyone thinks Mark Hamill, you know, Luke Skywalker and Corvette Summer, the Mark Hamill classic that nobody ever <laughs> went to see. Uh, but he's also been doing a ton of voice work. He's been voicing the Joker in a lot of the Batman animated shows uh, for for decades now. And, yeah, he's been doing really great at that, too. He's he's a master. He's more than just, you know, an on-camera, on-screen actor. He's a great voice actor as well. So I think he's a great fit for this. Aubrey Plaza also stepping in uh, in this one. And, yeah, Chucky's got a bit of a makeover as well. They've changed the design. He's uh, modernized himself a little bit, and because of technology now, he's a little more uh, sophisticated. He's got some uh, cool little things about him that he can access your home systems and alter your thermostats and security systems and things like that, which is kind of like the tech we see now. You have like the Nest and you have apps that can Alexa that can control things. So what if Chucky could tap in and then use those for evil? If Chucky got an iPhone. Scary things. (laughs) I'm, I don't know. I'm a chicken, but I feel like I can handle it. Uh, anyway, uh, Tanner, thanks so much. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Sounds great. Thank awesome. you. And that's a wrap. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. Please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or questions about anything you heard on the podcast, let us know at hellomovies at cineplex.com. 
Hello Movies is brought to you by Cineplex Entertainment. Lori Ulster is the writer of our podcast. Sarah Cooper is our producer. Ellie Gordon Marshall is our sound designer and mixer. Our series consultant is Jeff Ulster. And our executive producer is Catherine Jun. A special shout out to Tanner Zipchin. I'm Lana Gay. Thanks for listening. See you at the movies. <laughs>